This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. My name is Joelle Taylor and today I've got a very special edition of the show in which we welcome both Sam Sachs, US poet, and winners of the Poetry Society's National Youth Slam Championships, Slambassadors, to join us in conversation. So, to remind you, Sam Sachs is an internationally renowned poet, editor and author of two collections, Bury It, which won the James Lachlan Award, and Madness, as well as being multiple slam champion and winning numerous awards for writing, as well as fellowships that support their work. Hiya, Sam. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm okay, actually. I've just been leading a masterclass upstairs with the National Slam team, and I believe you've been... Having one downstairs mm. at the same time, how was that for you? You know, it was good. I haven't, I just got here and haven't really slept much. Uh, so I'm super disoriented and I don't 100% remember anything we talked about. Excellent. But people seem to have a good time. Excellent. Yeah. Do you find like running masterclasses and workshops helps to support your own writing process? Um, yeah. I think especially getting to watch how folks think through poems. Mm. Uh, really helps me think differently and getting to be in a room with other people working helps me work differently. Yeah. yeah. And I think like it's something that certainly for myself is fundamental in, in a strange kind of way to my own process because it's that looking at different, the way different people approach things. Mm. So you're, the idea is that you're the tutor and that yeah. you come with all this knowledge where in fact you come with some ideas and to see how people take them. Yeah. I came up through community writing workshops and I think writing quietly, uh, in rooms with a bunch of people and then hearing the various things everybody made has always been sort of central to my writing process. Right. Um, and I've always thought in that way of writing as like a community oriented activity. No, I do as well. Yeah. And I think this is something that would be really interesting to talk about. So you have kind of come up through the American spoken word scene. Mm. Um, we've seen a lot of you on things like button poetry and just on the own videos. What is the transition between spoken word and what we'd think of as page poetry? Because you're very successful in both. Thank presentations. you. Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I came up like touring before mm. I was in the slam circuit. So okay. I just did readings at like punk shows and basements. Um, and like pizza shops and bars where no one wanted to hear us. Uh, and then my whole writing life in the slam was always connected with folks who were very interested in making the best possible poem, right? Or making a poem that yeah. sings in the air and on the page and in the mind. Um, and so that sort of division felt like an inheritance from like a different generation of slam poets who had... a. Um, I think a lot more trouble breaking into certain literary spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess I was also the first like poet to come out of the slam in my graduate poetry class. So right. I think, but so th those boundaries seem a bit more porous, but there's still that, you know, division. I mean, I think you said, touched on a couple of really interesting points there. The first yeah. point was when you were saying you're coming up through noisy bars, mm. which is where in the UK spoken word has that kind of aesthetic that, or the poetic that was developed through having to struggle to be heard. Right. I mean, quite literally, not just in terms of what we're talking about, right, but right. literally you couldn't hear us. Has that something that's in, infused your work? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely in performance, you know, um, I mean, this, like, the slam is a bar game, too, right? It was, like, invented mm. in a Chicago bar. Uh -huh. um, and I think for me, I used to also do this, like, open mic on a street corner okay. in San Francisco at 16th and Mission, where there was a lot of, um, you know, like, drunks and 
like crackheads out um and you had to like be very loud in order to like get folks attention um and to say something worth like a group of folks who don't necessarily listen to poetry mm. like be interested in the work you know and do you think like <clears throat> that you said folks who aren't very interested in poetry mm. And for me, that's like my core audience. Yeah. That's my big aim mm. in life. It's easy to kind of be in a group full of people who love poetry and, mm -hmm. and get some sort of feedback from them. But it, um, there's a huge wide audience out there. Mm -hmm. Is that an important, when you're writing your books, is that something you're considering? Um, yeah, I think writing only for other folks who write poetry seems really sad to me. Mm. You know, it seems like you're only speaking to folks who like play the same game that you do. And then the work doesn't have like resonance outside to like, or like doesn't pull people into this medium that you love. Yeah. I love like, um, I don't know, Amir Baraka would often talk about like reading poems to just folks on the street, you know? And, yeah. um, and that was also like a slam exercise I did as a coach. Like I would tell folks to like go read poems out in public, you yeah. know, and make sure that work sings, even if it's not somebody who's like studied It's really interesting because the very first Slambassadors, the first five years, mm. when it was just a London-based slam project, I used to take people down to the Covent Garden Market and it's an incredibly busy area, very dynamic, and mm. it's full of people, as people are in London, very stressed mm. and not paying attention to anything except their next kind of destination. So it's a, a really strong way to kind of try and get young people to find their voices. Yeah, I think it also like denaturalizes public space and changes everybody's daily commute and makes us sort of think differently about the world which is what i think a poem does in general right it like makes you think differently or helps you see how somebody else sees the world it's sort of the quality of attention you pay so if you bring that into like i mean i don't really do it in streetcars because that feels like folks can't leave <laughs> which feels a little spooky but like um yeah just outside in a park to yeah. read a poem you know it just like Yeah, and especially in like a financial district, it mm -hmm. sort of changes how we think. That's kind of why I like, so in the UK we have venues that I think of as more spoken word based. Mm. And part of that is because they have exits for me. Mm. They've got bars in the space and they've got exits, so it's not that sense of going into a prestigious prison of some kind mm. where you, you know, I, I mean, I'm working class. The class politics we were discussing earlier is very kind of core to uk culture i mm. think so <clears throat> is that something you think has helped support the spoken word or the the underground poetry scene in the u.s being able to leave yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> for sure um yeah that i think like having it in a bar where folks are going to be there not for the show you yeah. know but just to drink or be around their friends and then get pulled into it has been really helpful um yeah because freedom is at the core of poetry mm. Yeah. I mean, although I kind of love performing in, what did you call it? Prestigious, Prestigious prisons. prisons. That's yeah. Just cause like, I feel like com I only have to be like mildly interesting to be a better reader than other folks there. Yeah. You know I mean? There is something about having that big kind of the semantics of the space, which we were talking about with the crew this morning, mm -hmm. that you can walk into a venue and your poem kind of begins for the audience before you've even spoken because you right. walk into a space and it's telling you how to behave and how to react. And there's something beautiful about, um, not having to work hard to mm -hmm. make people view, give you some credibility. Yeah. I guess. And have already done the work before you get there just yeah. by like being present in your body, yeah. you know, or like having some control over how your voice operates in a room. And I think there's also something about, um, poetry apart from us weirdos who are 
really involved within it, mm. seeming like something that's very difficult and, and different to the rest of popular culture, that there's it's something difficult we do. Mm. Um, and I, so I think um, perhaps these spoken word spaces allow us to play with that idea a little bit more and be a little bit more free. Mm. I agree with that. That's also my experience, yeah. So um, you've written this amazing book, which we're going to talk about in depth a little bit oh, later, thanks. called Madness. It's an absolutely fantastic book. Um, it's published by Penguin Poets. Um, and it's highly advisable. But I believe that you wrote something else on the way over here. Would you like to read that out now? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, we'll see how this goes. I don't even know if it's a poem. <laughs> Um, currently in California, there's like a really terrible wildfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like we spent the past week, uh, you know, with breathing masks on. Um, and so this is just like my boyfriend walked me to the train and then I was writing this on the plane over. He walks me to the train in our respirators. It's almost funny the way our faces look too fat for these cheap breathing masks spilling out the sides like twin chubby sunsets like two frumpy queens on their way to an underwhelming Halloween. (laughs) I know the smoke hanging everywhere is really the ghost of some burnt towns, a few hundred thousand acres of forest. So many family portraits, unpaid for houses, inherited toys just floating there in the air around us. So many churches and car tires and initials carved into bark, marking out a first kiss. So many crops and copper wire and weeds all gone. Or if not gone, remade here. And this is what happens to a landscape undone by flames. Some fate, same fate as our dead, lifted up and blown out toward the ocean, unless something's unfinished. And then this is called a haunting. On the walk, we pass a group of kids smoking, and each exhale appears in the air as a prayer, joining this big impermanence, participating in this ghost religion. Other folks unmasked walk past us, looking like we're the problem. Us disheveled Cassandras, holding hands and barely holding it together. We prophets of our current unpleasantness. We mirrors you clean, only to realize You're the one who's been ugly all along. And this is how I know we're done for. How even now, with the smoke all around us, we blame paper. Mm. Blame covered faces. Rage at near places, at neighbors, and never the structures that make poisons out of our nature. What paves over the angels. I'm on my way to a gig, and this too is part of the problem. A train to a train to an airplane to a train to a rented bed to read poems to strangers and who knows what they'll do with them. I do believe in language, though, that it can remake the landscape same as fire, can be carried with you as you flee the burning village, can blink a town out of existence only to rebuild it whole and shining on the coast, can breathe life back into our dead, can give them back little bodies to sing in. I believe this with my whole heart. And even here, my whole heart is just a phrase I wrote on paper. At the station, my man kisses me through our breathing masks whispers something unintelligible and laughs, winks with one exposed eye, 
and I understand the joke without needing to hear it. I think this is perhaps not the worst apocalypse. This good haunting. Here in this rented bed of a body, here in this temporary burning town on this fleeing planet with two faces too big for their small paper grins, where our lips almost touch for a moment, but not quite. Then we're gone. Jeez. Sam Sachs reading an exclusive original poem, Poetry Society podcast, because some people don't watch the telly on the plane. Mm. Like me, I watched the whole of the Avengers. Um, It was a 12-hour flight. You know, I had time to (laughs) do both. It's really interesting about this, and you'll hear later when people, um, a couple of people read out, the resonances, there are images across that poem that Mm. are resonating, I think, across the world at the moment. Mm. This sense of everything burning Mm. and the sense of things not quite meeting and touching. And and also, there's a sense of the haunting. Mm. What's that line you used? The haunting of... Um, I know the smoke hanging everywhere is really the ghost. Of yeah, later towns. on you return to mm. the idea of haunting. Oh, yes. can't remember. Could you remind me of the line? Uh, just wrote... Oh, yes. Unless something's... Uh, yeah. Same fate as our dead lifted up, blown toward the ocean, unless something's unfinished, and this is called a haunting. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. And I think that's it's a, it becomes not just... And I was trying to talk to the kids earlier on about how something very personal mm. can also be something very large as well, like mm. that. And I think that poem um, hits all of that beautifully. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm still not sure what it is or what it's doing. So this might be its only recitation. But, um, but there's something really compelling about a great poet's work that is unedited. Mm. You know, maybe because in the digital age, we won't be able to find people's poems on the backs of envelopes anymore but just in these kind of recordings mm. where you get these workings out on on mm. air yeah which is extraordinary thank you for giving us that well thanks for listening um i loved what you're saying as the sort of personal as a vehicle to talk about the world you know and that i mean i want to also say that's like the i think the only way to like talk about the world at large you know is through these like various lived entryways you know yeah and the only way to make it compelling is through like the rich particulars of a life and a history mm. um and so yeah i think that's like something i try to do with every poem and like that's what resonates most with me with other folks work yeah i'm finding i mean one of the things i found really changed in uk poetry over the last 10 years is the pronoun i entering poems more mm. and more and more which has become for me a really freeing thing mm. because i never used to do that at all you know, mm-hmm. in fact, it felt, and I guess that's that's a sense of identity anyway, mm-hmm. not being able to do that. But it's something that's becoming more and more common. So it's as though we're all responding mm-hmm. to these huge things by returning to the self and putting ourselves in those situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also feels more honest to me. Like, yeah. Because you were there the whole time, you know? Yeah. Like, what, what, who are you trying to pretend? Like, <laughs> some, like, objective something made a poem? I don't know. Great. Yeah. Right. Um, Yes, sure, sure. So, um, guys, um, who would like to ask the first question? Ah, so it's Matt Sowerby. Would you like to come to the microphone and ask a question, please? Yeah, I was just going to ask if you have a favorite UK spoken word artist. Um... 
Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> must we'll, we'll see what this trip provides. Well, you're going down to see Anthony Naxaguru tonight. Yes. Yeah. And you're welcome to come to the show tomorrow as well. You'll see. Will you be reading? I'll be reading. I bet. I'll be there. Put up. Cool. Big stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you guys, I mean, do you feel, if I can ask, do you feel like you've got a sense of who you are as spoken word artists in the world? Or is it just in this town or in your bedroom? How do you see yourself in the canon? Um, Aisha, would you like to come forward? I think it's like quite difficult because you can write such great pieces, but if you don't have the access or connections, mm -hmm. you really can't like publicize them. So it's like such valuable items you have, but they're like under your bed or something. So yeah. it really depends on like access and connections. So I really hope that obviously through programs like this, like Slambassadors and stuff, and it has helped to to get to give ac this access to more people. Yeah, brilliant. So to pick up on Aisha's point about these connections being really, really important, what kind of advice would you give to the brand new young slam team of the UK? How do they create these connections? Uh, first of all, congratulations! <laughs> Very exciting. Um, well, I can only talk. I think for my experience and uh, the sort of generation of poets I came up with. I came up with before they, you know, blew up. Um, and I think through working together and editing each other's work and being in community, um, it improved greatly my writing. Um, and I think everybody else's, but I think like, like Denez, who was out here recently, uh, I'm in a collective with them and the poet Hugh Wynn and Cameron Awkward Rich. Um, and I have a collective, I mean, like I have a larger group of folks who's like the poet for any Choi. Uh, Fatima Asghar, uh, just like a handful of folks I met in the slam as like a 20 something. Y'all are probably younger than that. Um, for sure. And then, uh, yeah, just like writing together for like a decade, you know, and exploring the, the writing world, both as far as like what the slam had to offer and then trying to break open some of these institutions. Um, and I think having guidance from folks like Patricia Smith, right, who came up through the slam Amazing. and also like I think broke open a lot of these uh, boundaries and borders and I guess Jeffrey McDaniels, another poet. Um, yeah, so I think it's like less the sort of vertical situation and more like building opportunities for ourselves that then became indispensable for these larger institutions you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And that's pretty much been paralleled by what the scene has done mm. um, in the UK. And we, I talked a lot to the kids today about um, how we set up in a way of to avoid gatekeeping, mm. in a sense. But once you've done that and you've got your, there's no editors to stop you standing up on a stage and performing your poem. And in a lot of ways, the audience becomes the editor, certainly mm. with a lot of our work. Um, <clears throat> but then it's really important in these collectives to... Um, to challenge each other rather than just sit there clapping, going, that's amazing, you're yeah. fabulous, but to actually try to continually raise the bar. Yeah, and point each other toward new work, you know, like things that you're reading, yeah, different areas of influence and history, yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, brilliant. Destiny, have you got a question for Sam? Yeah, I had a question. Um, how important is form and structure in your poetry? I think I turn to form when I'm stuck in other ways or when it insists upon itself. Uh, so in, um, in my new book, there's a poem that's an elegy for Tyler Clementi, who's a young queer kid who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and it's made of like sampled material, like found materials from news articles published after his death. Um, and I made that poem like that because I couldn't figure out how to make an elegy in like my own language. 
you know, and instead I was like interested in how the language um, of the like news media cut up and repurposed uh, changed how we think of elegy and how we think of loss, you know? So I think like that, and that was like a sonnet too, and like a structured sonnet. So I think sometimes the form set like insists upon itself, right? And mm-hmm. and makes you write that way. Um, but I'm also like interested in the history of the sonnet and messing with the sonnet and breaking it up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that is useful to know about and then to subvert. And especially if it gives you legs to make new work it's something that's really useful for me yeah so how did you get into form how did you first start exploring it um you know i always felt a bit inadequate uh just as a performance poet trying to enter these literary spaces and feeling like i didn't have access to them because um so so that's one answer right so feeling like i needed to make up for something by like learning this history this like uh English literary history that I hadn't like been trained in. Um, but I think the more compelling and interesting answer is, uh, when it became cool and exciting, you know, like when I saw someone read a contrapuntal for the first time Uh and I was like, that's a poem where it's like in one column, it's in two columns and you can read them down or across. Uh And I was like, wow, like a poem can really do anything. Right. Or like have any shape you know so, or perform any function i mean i think one of the, the things with spoken word is it's I've, when i'm teaching in schools mm. i describe this is really not great description mm. but to, for a 13 year old that pa- uh, page poetry and form is is kind of like classical music mm. and has those rules and spoken word has um it's like soul music and mm. has a kind of understanding of some of the of the 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 rules within it but is a kind of guttural thing one of the things about spoken word that i think goes a bit wrong Mm. is that we can be all heart Mm. and all raw so do you find that having that form helps to kind of access those emotions in a slightly different way yeah i I think i think so i mean i like the description of all poems being sheet music though Mm. as like you know, it's like a piece of music written down that can be sung in any number of ways, you know? So you've got like the sonnet and you could read it, you know, and it doesn't like tell you how to read it. So you, as like the reader get to interpret how it's like lifted into the air. Um, yeah. I mean, I think any understanding of like the history of the, the genre you're like writing into for me has been like really useful, you know, just like reading folks who have various obsessions, both like metrical and otherwise, you know, um, you know, like playing with the contrapuntal has been really useful. Playing with the pantoum and the sestina are oh useful. Oh my god, the pantoum! Know? So, can you describe to them what the pantoum is? Because we haven't talked about that. Oh, it's actually a poem form, a Malaysian poem form, right? That uh, has a repeating line sequence, and so it's sort of like a lattice work, and it's in quatrains. So you say like the first, you've got like the first stanza, and then it just repeats. Um, while we're on that moment, it would be seem to me a good time to invite onto the microphone Noah, who's one of this year's ambassadors, <laughs> and who is going to read a poem that they wrote. He wrote this morning. Okay. <clears throat> would you like to give us some context? So um, this is picking up on what Sam was saying about the intimate in 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 a much larger situation. Could you introduce the poem? Basically, um, there was a girl I knew um, who died in Grenfell Tower, um, and um, I didn't know her that well. But like we went to secondary school, and I was like, I knew like my mom and like my family knew her family and that kind of thing. 
And um, and you live very close to Grenfell Tower. Yeah, yeah. As well. I live like a couple. I live quite close in the area. Um, and like, it was very much like my community that was affected by it, like mm. Labrador Grove and stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. <clears throat> hey. The day you left, our whole neighborhood was swallowed in upstrokes, in endless graying jaws of smoke. People cried on the news. You didn't get confirmed as dead for weeks. We didn't bury you for a year. Hey, Labrador Grove became a splash zone for widow tears that day. Norhuda, I told everyone I know your name for weeks, and the response was temporary. Mm. Uncomfortable squirming. Missing posters wallpapered the pubs, the schools. Your face was plastered on the inside of my eyelids. Hey, your home is a husk now. No culpability. No culpability because that word isn't spelt in immigrant English. Because po poverty is the tongue made to swallow a tower block hole. Hey, <laughs> just know we remember. I can't believe you're gone. Thank you very much for reading that, Noah. Yeah, that was gorgeous. Thank you. I think these kind of poems are very important because um, a situation like Grenfell Tower, you understand what happened there? No? no. I'll explain to you. So no. Grenfell Tower is a, <clears throat> a tower block in West London, mm. and it was clad in very cheap materials to make it look beautiful for the richer people living outside. This happened a year ago. Mm. And um, because of that, a very small fire one of the flats um, burnt the entire tower block down. It burned for a long, long time with the loss of official figures of 70, but unofficial figures are in the hundreds mm. because it was uh, people piled up on top of each other and immigrant families mm. having more than the people they said mm. were in the flat living there. And it's become a kind of... A scar on the whole of London, on the UK, it's become a, it's become a kind of comment on austerity and the way we treat people mm -hmm. in the UK. So um, I really like the way that you use the hey in it, which seems so much less formal and is just like you're meeting Huda in school and just going, hey, how mm -hmm. is it? Yeah, it's a really remarkable gesture. It insists upon itself, right? Because it's to this person you lost and it's also to the listener of the poem like demanding attention and i think that is like a, a hinge of the poem is really really compelling thank you so you came up and you just made yourself very vulnerable there and like you you can't see him but yes he's looking extremely fraught and vulnerable your whole book is mm. about masculine vulnerability mm. mental health addiction sex etc what was the compulsion to write this book? What was the seed idea? Um, I actually found a list of uh, antiquated diagnoses from the DSM-1, oh. you know, and then I looked at it and I realized that everything in it, the DSM-1 is like the diagnostic manual for mental health, mental disorders. Um, and so, and it was written in the 50s and everything in it was like really horrifying, right? So like homosexuality was in there. Um, chewing tobacco is it you know it's like so there's like some absurd ones and then other ones that seemed like to really resonate on, about how society and inequity and structural oppression operate today you know so um 
seeing that route was like, oh, the, I want to open this up and see if I can make a book out of it. Mm. Yeah. Were there poems that you found much more difficult to write or to find a way to write? Well, you know, so I did, I wrote this book at a residency in the, in upstate New York over a month where I sort of just like brought this book with me, the DSM one and then some Foucault and then just kind of lost my mind <laughs> in the material and like wrote like hundreds of pages and then, and then sort of edited it back. So I think that whole month was just really tough, both exploring like my own history as somebody negotiating various, uh, mental health diagnoses and my family's history as like, uh, mental health patients and practitioners. Mm. Yeah. It's a, certainly a really important book. It feels like mm -hmm. one that's, um, it's kind of pinpointed a moment in time in the psyche, the global psyche. Um, mm -hmm. because, even in the work we've been doing this morning, it's all been about borders and vulnerability. Mm. And that's coming from you. Everybody's talking about the same kinds of things. Beth, would you like to get on the mic for us, please? Come on, Beth. You're going to read the canto that you wrote this morning, this afternoon. And it's uh, like yours, it's an absolute first draft and just being introduced for the first time to canto, so... You had six boxes that you were going to write a poem in each one. One. My mother taught me to cry ice water. It has been cold, a dark tunnel, a busy market street of no safety. My mother taught me to be weaponized. I am a viper, vicious with love for others, but none left for myself. Mm. Two. They picked at my womanhood like daisy petals, ripped me apart. There is an emptiness here, a hatred, a volcano, no trust, that word, who is she? How can she exist when everything that makes me woman has been stolen? Three. I learned to forget her, but when I flinch because of a hug, I realise there is a thunderstorm brewing under my skin, it is itching and burning, so every scar is an outward reminder, shattered glass, somehow I remain, lifeless in the art of trauma. Four. Boys are a wasteland of suffering, a catalyst for panic attacks. Love cannot exist within these walls, not my walls. There is no beauty in damaged goods. I wonder, will the seas ever part again? Will I begin to feel whole in this life again? Five. When I started thinking girls were attractive, I blamed it on the daisy chains. It was a petty theft, guilt, torment. Sometimes I tell people outwardly. Only one has ever given me strength. The rest have eaten my flesh and used my bones to build new homes. Six. When I asked you to love me, I didn't ask so I could learn to feel again. I did it so I could put my energy into someone truly beautiful. You're a dizzy vacancy. I'd hope you'd fall out of the page for me instead. I'm wearing ladders on my forearms. I thought I could build you up. Funny. You only ever ended up knocking me down. That was the first draft. Wow. Y'all are just out 16 here. 16 years old. Writing masterpieces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, um, I, well, I tell you what I really liked about that, Beth. It was the fact that you write long spoken word pieces, you know, three to five minutes, mm. epics. And through this exercise and having, I just drew six boxes on a piece of paper that you have to distill the imagery. And for me, you'd said um, a huge amount because you had to focus in on each scene to show 
the moment of and that beautiful line, the art of trauma, mm. talking about the performativity of it and the ladders on the skin. Yeah, and also the way those different boxes accrue and relate to each other is um, is really compelling. Also, the way the da- Daisy imagery moves through. Yeah. Um, and I also like that subtle dig at Elliot. Boys are a wasteland of suffering. It's got multiple meanings going on, which I'm loving. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was really gorgeous. And also that turn to the you, to the beloved at the end, really like pulls pulls me in as a listener. Just really, yeah, thank you. Okay, let's go to another question from the Slambassadors. Uh, Joshua, would you like to ask a question? When you come to think about performing something that might be provocative and very vulnerable, how do you just be confident and not care what people are going to think about it? Mm, good question. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that word provocative is interesting, right? Because it's like there's so many ways that that so many ways you can provoke someone, you know, in what capacity toward what. Um, so I think the, the thing for me about emotional vulnerability is um, I love, I find that the most freeing work I do is when I perform poems that leave me laid bare in front of people. Um, and so if it's provocative, I want to make sure it provokes in a way that responds back to my truth and my own vulnerability and not just to provoke for like, you know, like, like why am I, poking at someone right um i think if it's rooted in my own experience and my own history um as difficult as it may be it always feels worth the provocation but if it's something else you know then i know to let that go and i don't need to read that out necessarily yeah that's a great question though really good question yeah i think it's what we we face every time we get onto a stage i'm Mm. explaining when you pick up a pen it's an act of courage and Mm. it's a further act of courage to get on the stage and we never get used to it the minute you get used to it um you're probably not having any sort of energetic effect on anyone including yourself Mm. um so uh i think one more question for sam um who would like destiny would you like to ask a question (laughs) in which case i'm going to ask the question um i'm just going to ask this one question then if we could end with um a poem of your choice from the book madness oh sure that would be incredible i just want to see how so i feel like poets we're always in conversation with each other um i I talk to dead people i'm sure you do too and Mm. it's um we are kind of part of a long line of poets who respond to each other and talk. I wonder what the legacy of other queer poets like Essex Hempel, mm-hmm. um, Adrian Rich, Audre Lorde, what effect that's had upon you? Yeah, I mean, those are all three poets whose poetics and poems have like deeply shaped how I think about my life uh, and politics. Yeah, Essex Hempel's book, Ceremonies, mm-hmm. changed my life, you know? Changed how I thought about desire and how I thought about like what... And, it made me realize what you can write about and how you can use language to exert power on the world and on your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Essex Hemphill is a huge influence for me. I mean, Audre Lorde's essays have been really formative and always at the center of every class I teach. Um, yeah. I mean, and then I think there's also like a long literary tradition of sad queers who like ineffectually suffer uh, in their rooms, you know, and I feel like I'm part of that as well, <laughs> you know, from Madhu Crane, Hart Crane, to up to like uh, Richard Sykin, who I think was one of like that that book crush was like a really influential mm. for me. Um, 
And so I think, yeah, I mean, all of those lineages are ones that I, you know, try to write into and be in conversation with. I don't know who yours are. Um, all of those, yeah. all of those. Um, and I've got an, I, I feel like I'm reading is obviously a huge part mm. of being a spoken word artist. And I think sometimes we forget that we come to it through reading. Mm. That's how we do. I mean, these days, obviously we have YouTube, et cetera, which informs the poetics as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I read all the time. Adrian Mitchell had a huge effect on me. The line, mm. um, no one enters this room without the dream of a common language mm. is still resonating with me now at 50 that it had the same that effect on me at 18 mm. and just reading the obscure people as well and contemporary poets so we're going to end this now um, if you'd like to choose any one of the poems oh. from my copy of your fabulous book Thank that you. would be incredible um, sure yeah okay so this poem's called Hematology oh yeah it's for, uh, I wrote it for my uncle when he was dying. Um, that was a moment that profoundly made me consider how the health of the body affects the mind um, and how the workings of the mind are deeply linked to like uh, the health and the resources we have here on earth. Um, hematology. While he lives, here's a list of images. Light in a filthy glass. Pigeon dead on a high spiked window, clear plastic bag above him full of water. If water could kill everything that lives in you, and it can. I sit in the corner of the cancer ward, fingering the app that shows me other faggots in the hospital. Chat with one I might meet in radiology, but don't. Instead, make the sick man laugh while he's conscious. Compliment his gown his new brutal cheekbone that appeared with the chemo. If only it were simple as a magnet sucking the bad metals out of him. If only I could make a better list, more magic, less language, paraphrastic and restorative. If only I met that stranger in the basement and our pleasure rose through the hospital, bliss poultice for the sorrow-skinned who sit half-conscious and half-machinery. While the sick man lives, all I can do is recount the vast pastoral of his illness. When he is gone, I'm counting on all the good flooding back. His beard, a collapsed country I'll refuge inside. His laugh, a memory so liquid I'll hear it when anyone opens a window to scare the birds. Mm -hmm.